It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the news meeting. Holy smoke, there is a lot of news around at the moment and it's hard to make sense of it. Hard to try and put it in some kind of order. But that's what happens in newsrooms everywhere, every day. And we're going to try and throw open the doors on that process, invite you in to the discussion about what should lead the news, what follows, what matters and why it matters. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me and then we're going to try and make sense of what we know, what it means and perhaps even where it might lead. I'm James Harding, I'm the editor of Tortoise and I worked as the editor of The Times, as the director of BBC News and my job in these meetings is always kind of the same. It's at the end of it to try and make a judgement about what really should lead the news. So from Podimo and Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Well, I have officially given up wishing people Happy New Year because it's the end of January. It's unbelievable to think that's happened so fast, but it has. So I wasn't here last week. Thank you. Big heartfelt thank you to Adam Bolton, who did a brilliant job chairing last week. But I'm back with three journalists who've been here before. Jeevan Vasagar is Tortoise's climate editor. Hello, Jeevan. Um, he worked in Singapore and in Berlin, uh, in Nairobi. Hang on, some of these things I didn't even know. Uh, and now he's here again on the news meeting. I've been on every continent, James. You have. Here's Mark St. Andrew. Welcome, Mark. Hi. Uh, Mark runs all of our live events here at Tortoise, everything that we do in our newsroom. He's been on the show before. And I'm here to win it this time. Of course you are. And Jess Winch is the news editor here. She was the foreign editor at The Telegraph. This is her first time on the show. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Um, now, if you've listened before, you'll know that this is a slightly different format to a classic news meeting. Some weeks you come in for a news meeting, you've got a bunch of great stories. Sometimes you've got nothing at all. In this, we stick to a simple rule. Each person can pitch one story. Others comment on that story. And at the end, I invite you all to say which story you think should lead the news before I give judgment of Solomon and say what I think should lead the news. But before we get into that, let's just have a quick reminder of what's happened this week. Amazon is facing its first ever strike from UK workers. I work for one of the richest men in the world, for one of the richest companies in the world, and they're saying I can only have 50 pence. You're careless if you, you know, miss a self-assessment deadline by a week. You're careless if you spill the milk when you're making a cup of tea. You're not careless if, reportedly, 
You end up paying a million pound penalty to HMRC, are you? Any politician who seeks to avoid the taxes they owe in this country is not fit to be in charge of taxpayer money. Germany confirms it will be sending tanks to Ukraine following weeks of international pressure. The only way to lasting peace is to make it clear to Putin that he will not win on the battlefield. It wasn't just that he wasn't wearing a seatbelt in his prime ministerial uh, car, but that he, that he filmed it. It's hard to think of many bigger, more unnecessary, unforced errors than this. So as you can hear, there's been a huge amount happening this week. Um, but what do each of you think matters most? Uh, why don't we start with long story short, Jeevan? Whose land is it anyway? Jess? Dankeschön, Deutschland. <laughs> oh, we're internationalising. Mark? Made in China? hope not. Let's start with you, uh, Jeevan. Whose land is it anyway? Sure. So this is a story about a guy called Alexander Darwal, a hedge fund manager who owns a 4,000-acre estate on Dartmoor. Um, and he went to the High Court and basically restricted uh, the right of wild camping on Dartmoor. So there's a class angle to this story, as there is, there is with all the best stories. But this is a story that goes deeper than that. It's a story about who controls access to the countryside, um, who gets to decide what happens to the countryside. And the reason why this matters, I think, it's more than about townies having the right to go and uh, go and drink beer and play the, play the guitar under the stars. It's about our connection to the countryside. It's about who gets to live there and what we do with it. Um, and this goes to um, how we deal with climate change, because the way that we use the land is basically the second biggest contributor to climate change after fossil fuels. So if we don't feel this connection to the countryside, we don't begin to understand how to change this. So forgive me, I'm going to sound very ignorant. I used to have a colleague when I was a reporter in China who said there's a certain kind of story that a foreign correspondent does called, you know, that thing that you've never heard of. Well, it's not happening. So while camping on Dartmoor, the the idea being that until now I've been able just to show up on Dartmoor and camp wherever I like is that the that's essentially the case. So th- there's hardly anywhere in England and Wales that you can do that. So England and Wales is, is an incredibly restrictive, the two restrict very restrictive countries when it comes to where you can go to hike, swim, camp. Dartmoor is one of the places where you could, if you wished, you obviously didn't wish, <laughs> go and camp and sleep under the stars whenever you wanted. Um, and that is now that is now ended. Dartmoor is a national park, isn't it? On what grounds can he say you can't? have free access to the land. So he has essentially established uh, in this High Court judgment that uh, campers need uh, the landowner's permission. So that that's what's changed. So this is now about negotiating with the landowner and not about simply turning up wherever you want, whenever you want, essentially. And so it, it, let's say that you're not a wild camper. Why do you care about this story? So... Um, the reason I would say it matters is that in England, we're really, really divorced from the countryside. We were one of the first countries to industrialise, to move into cities. And that affects how we see the place. So, so there are two problems with how, how we see the countryside. Um, we basically um, uh, are used to seeing it purely as a place of recreation. And we're, we're sort of we're removed from the idea that um, it's part of our lives and that farming is part of our lives. And we also tend to romanticise it. So you remember the Brexit conversation about fishing. Uh, and fishing is something like 0.1% of gross value added, as you know, tourism is something like 7%. But fishing really, really matters because really, really matters to us in a kind of emotional sense, because we look at the countryside and say what it needs to be. Uh, is a hillside covered in sheep. That's what a, a natural countryside looks like. And other countries um, say, no, there are farms and there's wilderness. And 
real wilderness. And we don't understand that in England anymore. And that's because we've become so separated from the countryside. And what does it say about land ownership? I think the key thing here is that a very tiny proportion, uh, it's about 1% of the population owns about half the land in England and Wales. Land ownership is really, really concentrated. Now, that's not, not is necessarily... That story, is that actual land as in what I think of as fields and green spaces, that includes housing as well? That's land. That's surface area of, of the island that we live on, yeah. And, and that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. You obviously get good landowners and bad landowners. But it essentially means that the way that we use the land is conditional on how a very, very small group of people thinks it should be run. All right. Jess Winch, Wild Camper. What do you think of this story? Has this ruined your summer plans? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I need to try wild camping. I haven't yet. I'm more of a yurter. Are you? Probably, if I had to. <laughs> As in probably you haven't tried yurting either. <laughs> if I had to choose. Uh, I now know there's a noun called yurta and a verb of called yurting, expanding my go. horizon. But seriously, Jess, what do you think of this story? I think it's an amazing story in the sense of I, there was a lot I've learnt about while camping, about land ownership, about how land is used in Britain that I wasn't aware of before. I wasn't a land of forest coverage being so low. I wasn't aware of um, the kind of tensions that we've reported on previously in Westminster accounts about this kind of very small minority of landowners that have an outsized say in how land is managed that in a way that either negatively or positively can impact so many more people. Uh, I just... I wonder if it is the story that is driving the week. Mark, what do you think? That was harsh. Jess? Sorry. Um, So it's sort of interesting. I mean, I'm a city person. I was born and grew up in central London. Um, And things like this, I mean, I've sort of grown up with people in my parents' pub saying things like, oh, every second Sunday, residents of the borough of Southwark can carry a sheep under arm across Westminster Bridge thanks to some obscure medieval land ownership law. And... I find it difficult to sort of care about this one. But I do, the bit I find that's really interesting is surely restricting access to sort of delicate ecosystems and nature reserves and stuff is a good thing because you don't want people trampling over like rare beetles and disturbing badger sets. And surely you, wild camping, I mean, you don't want tents pitched all over Dartmoor and people potentially starting brush fires. You can tell that my knowledge of the countryside I'm is... I'm loving this angle, though. I'm loving the angle, which is that the wild campers are a nuisance. So, Mark, you're absolutely my target audience for this story. If I can persuade right. you, I can persuade absolutely anybody. Fine. Um, I think what you, the point you made about wild camping is a really interesting one. I remember um, there was a forestry ranger uh, a few years ago who talked about wild campers and said sometimes when they arrive, it's like a bomb sitting off licence. It's disgusting. <laughs> um I think obviously it matters that people use the countryside responsibly. Um, but I think the idea, but I think if you can do that, building our connection to the countryside is essential. And anything that erodes that connection is a bad thing. All right, well, we'll come back to that. But now, Mark, what's your story of the week? Okay, so my story of the week, and it's a bit of a different one uh, than I would normally pick. But on Monday, the Lekki Deep Seaport opened in Lagos in Nigeria. Um, it's Nigeria's first deep seaport. Deep seaport means that it can accept container ships with a draft of up to about 17 metres. It's a big deal. It's going to revolutionise the movement of cargo all around West Africa. And when it's up and running, it will shift about two and a half million containers a year. So far, so good. 
where it gets interesting is this is 70%, uh, 75% owned by the uh, as a JV between the China Harbour Shipping Company um, and there's a Singaporean shipping company in there as well somewhere but it's mainly China and the whole thing has cost something like $1.6 billion. Now um, there's a couple of things. The first thing is the China Chinese Belt and uh, Road Initiative of funding infrastructure projects on paper sounds really good. Going into con- developing countries that can't afford these massive in- infrastructure projects, lending them the money, providing the materials and the contractors and helping them build the things that they need, ports, airports, roads, etc. In the case of Lecky, there are worries that this is a bit of a white elephant in that, yes, they've got this amazing port that can process two and a half million containers a year, but it's surrounded by roads and railways that aren't really up to the job of getting them out of the port and elsewhere. Well, hold on, hold on. So your argument is, we're going to take this particular story, the Leckie port development, yep. as an example of white elephant, in, inefficient investment as part of China's kind of global infrastructure expansion. Exactly. But the people at Leckie should be worried because what's coming to light now is that a lot of the major infrastructure projects that have been funded by Chinese corporations are not built up to very good standards. So if I'd give you an example, the Coco Codo Sinclair hydroelectric plant in Ecuador has just reported something like 17,000 cracks in its turbines. It's only been open about six years. A hydroelectric plant should last about 100 years. And the Ecuadorian authorities have had to shut it down just a couple of weeks ago. This is going to cost them millions every month in buying in energy. And they are stuck now with a 2.7 billion hydroelectric plant that doesn't work. And they can't afford to repair it, fix it, start it up again, build another one. They've bought a real white elephant. And it's not an isolated example. More things are coming on board all the time. In Pakistan, there was another hydroelectric plant that was shut down four years um, after it had opened. This is again last year. And that's, again, these things should last for almost a century. And the Chinese are building them. Well, the accusation is, and it looks like they're being built with substandard steel, contractors that maybe aren't the sort of most suitable for the job. Um, the, the, the countries buying them are charged ridiculously high interest rates on the deals and are left with these huge things that they can't repair and can't fix. So, Mark, so I was really interested in this story. About four or five years ago, there was an example of a presidential palace that was rebuilt as part of Chinese investments. It was in a uh, an African country, and I can't name it because I haven't p- proved that it's true. I don't know whether it's true, but the story was that the palace had been put in and the plumbing didn't work and so in the president's loo they had a plumbing problem right which is you can imagine is not very presidential the malfunctioning throne room (laughs) nice (laughs) exactly that (laughs) the difficulty with those stories is that they are so systemic Mm -hmm. and the numbers are so big and the projects are technical that they often don't feel like they have much heart so they might be about the way the world's changing but we often don't tell these stories because there's not a person involved that no. that, that captures our imagination and i think and there was a phrase when i looked into the 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 hydroelectric dam in ecuador it was a phrase from one of the engineers where he was saying this could all just tumble over tomorrow or it might tumble over in six months we have no idea jess what do you think yeah, I think my my point would pick up on yours, which is that in telling this kind of story, if I was sort of if I was commissioning it, it would be like who who could you talk to on the ground who could give you a sense of what it looks like, what it feels like, what the kind of reaction is there, um, as you say, to put some put the heart into it as well as the the numbers and the sort of um, 
the big picture. Jeevan, is this, has Mark spotted something that's seismic and important or a bit worthy and dull? So on a, on a personal level, uh, Mark, I'd say I'm personally really interested in this story because my family comes from Sri Lanka and Sri Lanka is perhaps the extreme example of how Belt and Roll Road um, has gone sour. I think my, as a journalist, my question about this story is um, I feel like there's a data-led investigation here and I think what you need to establish is how many of these projects have gone sour. We know there's bad governance with Belt and Road. Um, is it worse than Western development projects? Uh, I know there have been a lot of bad projects. There have equally been a number of good ones. Uh, I think the Chinese built and financed the Mombasa to Nairobi railway line, which is considered a success. So I think I'd like to get a sense of, um, you know, how do these projects pan out? Are are enough of them uh, a failure to say this is specifically a Chinese problem, as opposed to a problem with development finance, which which is a difficult area. There are are always bets that go wrong, especially in a a downturn. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. All right, we're going to come back to judging both Dartmoor and Nigerian ports, but not until we've heard from Jess. Um, Jess, what's your story of the week? I've gone on a slightly different tack from my colleagues and picked what is probably a very obvious um, story of the week that's been on front pages that will be familiar to everyone listening to this, which is the news that the US and Germany are sending tanks to Ukraine. This was announced on Wednesday. Germany announced it was going to send 14 Leopard 2A6 tanks uh, from stocks held by its army, as well as teaming up with other European countries to create a kind of battalion, or two tank battalions rather, of um, of the German-made Leopards. And then later in the day, Joe Biden stood up and announced that the US would also be sending 31 M1 Abrams tanks. And I picked this story because I think people have been Allies, Ukraine and its allies have been pushing for this to happen for a long time. And the general consensus was that this this was required and Germany was digging in its heels. So when it actually happened, it was accepted very, very quickly within hours. People already talking about what Ukraine needed next um, in terms of in terms of fighter jets, which which we can come back to. But I wanted to raise the story because I think this is a pivot moment in the war. Undeniably, I think this is a pivot moment in that cuts through the the week of news that when you're looking back at the kind of moments that defined this particular conflict, this is one of them because these tanks are world class. They will make a difference. And I think that shouldn't be um, brushed over, I suppose, because I think I think that's why this matters. And I think the jubilation which with which this news was greeted in Ukraine is kind of testament to how much this is going was to it, help their effort. Well, there was celebration in Ukraine. Yes, yeah, this was this was everyone posing in leopard print clothing um, all through, and you know, it was going wild on social media in terms of just showing how happy they were. And I think the the Ukraine deputy foreign minister phrased it quite well when he was like, hallelujah, Jesus Christ. And then he went on and was listing what else they needed in terms of fighter jets. But there was, it was it was seen as as, as this moment that um, people had been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. And as, as recently as Monday, it didn't look as though it would happen. There was a big meeting of allies at uh, an airbase in Germany last Friday where people anticipated it might be announced and nothing happened. So people, I think, were starting to 
lose hope or just get very frustrated and then suddenly and, and this is one of the questions that I think where the story leads next is trying to work out what happened between last Friday and this Wednesday which finally meant that the US and Germany were willing to stand together on the same day and make that announcement so that's so, so let, Jess let's do both of those things mm. firstly you mentioned the F-16 was mm-hmm. it you mentioned the fighter jets so if the West commits Leopard tanks Abrams tanks does it follow then that sooner or later the West is going to be sending those F-16s, some kind of fighter jet, to to Ukraine? I, the honest answer is I don't know. The you could look at the process of of what's happened in the past year. A year ago, if you remember, almost to the day, Germany was offering to send five thousand helmets to Ukraine, which, as you can imagine, went didn't go down particularly well. But if you look at the difference that has made, that's that's one way to frame it. But. Um, I think what's really hard to measure and another way that this story leads is we don't know how Russia is going to respond to this. I think they have made a very careful calculation in deciding to send these tanks. I think they're, they're, they're definitely, both Germany and the US have already ruled out absolutely that they would send fighter jets, although I think other other um, countries like the Netherlands have said, well, we, there's no taboo against that as on principle. But I don't think we can make any... Um, forecast. I think it would be a bit bit dangerous at this point to just uh, assume what, of what, what might get sent next. And just do the Russia side of this, because the presumably one of the things that happened between Friday and Wednesday was a debate within the White House in Berlin, which is, what's the risk of sending the tanks? Does that prompt an escalation? Does that prompt some form of retaliation from Russia? And verbally, what have you seen out of Moscow? So verbally, what we've seen out of Moscow is is sort of at the moment two two kind of angles, I suppose. I think one directed at an international audience and one directed at a domestic audience. For the international audience, you're seeing people like Russia's ambassador to Germany saying that this is an extremely dangerous decision and issuing quite harsh warnings of what might come next. But then at the same time, you saw Putin's spokesman saying that these tanks burn like all the rest. They're just more expensive. So this idea that it won't make that much difference. And I think those that different type of messaging is because they're intended for, for two separate audiences there. Stephen, what do you think of this? Um, well, I, I guess the first thing I would say about uh, the war in Ukraine is that I don't really understand it. And I think the second thing I would say is that I don't think many other people understand it either. I don't think we understand um, who's winning. I don't think we understand what the outcomes are, how long this is going to last, what people's motivations are. And so I think what we tend to do with this as journalists is to focus on deliveries of equipment. So we talked about HIMARS, uh, we talked about Javelins, we talked about Patriots, and now we're talking about Leopards because these are tangible things that we feel we can understand. Um, and these are, they, they make sense as news stories, but I don't think they really tell us what's happening in Ukraine, which I think is something that we really, really struggle to understand. And I think we struggle because war is chaotic, because nobody really knows what Putin is thinking, and because I don't think we really understand Zelensky either. We don't really know the Ukrainians either. So I think there's a kind of mystery there, and we're trying to fill in the mystery with with things that we can make sense of. Mark, what do you think? Um, I mean, I think yeah, because it's sort of it's clear this is going to drag on for quite a long time, and it's been going for quite a long time, and we've ended up sort of just following stories of of progress. Oh, so we're going to send these tanks, but I think there is a more interesting story. So we're sending the tanks. Are we sending enough? Will they make any difference? Does sending two different types of tank cause a problem? Because the American tanks and the Leopards are brilliant, um, and are the leopards being used in the way that they are designed to be used? You know, because I would have thought they were alongside 
they go in alongside air defence and electronic warfare and all sorts of other things. And you probably need a critical number of them to have some any, the right kind of effects. Are we doing that? Are there enough? That kind of thing. Rather than just like, hooray, the politicians have agreed, let's send some tanks. Uh, let's pause and try and figure out what we think should lead the news. And before I give my own view on that, uh, let's hear from each of you. Jeevan, what's your running order? And by the way, you're not allowed to pitch your own story. You've got to pitch other people's story. It's a kind of generous, not entirely journalistic spirit at work here, but let's give it a go. Sure. So James, I would say my instinct as a journalist would be to, to say Ukraine's the most important story. But I think that is um, an instinct that's hardwired into me from years of being in newsrooms. And so I'm probably going to opt for Belt and Road as the story that ought to lead, because I do think there's an, in, there's an interesting investigation to be done there. And I think if we're an investigative newsroom, that's the story that I want to dig into. I think there's a real question about China, where China is going. I'd really like to know, know the answer to it. it. may not be that Belt and Road gives us the, the answer to that, but it gives us some sense of part of the answer, I think. The people of Nigeria and Ecuador, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what do you think? Um, so I think I can't pretend that I care that much about the countryside. It's it's just something that's so remote, which I realise is probably part of the problem, but I still think the last thing the countryside needs is lots of wild campers all over the place. So I think it has to be Ukraine, because I'm genuinely interested in not just the fact that it's happened, but what what happens now. Um, Jess? I think if it's if it's not Ukraine, then I actually would I would go for Dartmoor, because it's a story we can tell now. And I and I understand the um, the people involved and the kind of, I, I can see how it could come together to to become a new story. I think, as you, as has been said, I think the China Belt and Road. I think there's the story there, but I'm not entirely sure how we're going to tell it at this point. All right. Well, now I get to do what editors get to do, which go. That's all very interesting. Now here's what we think. So I'm going to have a go at saying what I think should run in what order. Typically, if I'm really honest, I would take Mark's story and say, that's a story that could and should lead the news, but we, but we don't have it yet. The reality is we've got the subject, we don't actually have the story. And the story would be an example where we've gone out, we've investigated a Chinese Belt and Road initiative, and we can say, here, look at this dam, look at this motorway, look at this bridge. Six months after construction, it's already revealing serious safety issues. It's part of a big pattern of investment where the politics of an investment have trumped the safety and the utility of it and it's going to have an impact both in country and the relationship with China but as things stand I don't think we've got the goods yet so what I think that is is the story that's a signal of a bigger set of stories to come so I'd run that third I, I totally appreciate the point about Dartmoor being like you know a where's Dartmoor B who cares about wild campers but I think that the reason why I that does you know ring bells why people will care about that story is I think Jeevan's right. There's an issue which is personal freedom. Surely somewhere I can just go out and sit under the stars and even if it is drinking beer out of cans and, you know, singing at the moon, that feels like a human freedom and if that's getting constrained, that's an issue. I do think the question of land ownership and the power of a few and the role of the courts in backing up property rights over personal freedoms feels like a significant issue and one that I can imagine people 
talk about, particularly in the context of climate. But I think that notwithstanding your point, Chief, and which is we're journalistically wired to say historic moments lead the news. This feels like not just a historic moment. It feels like one of those stories that leads lots of places. So it gets into what's the place of Germany in the international order, particularly around issues of uh, defense and uh, uh, military equipment. Something fundamental has happened as a result of the Ukraine war that hadn't happened since 1945. What will be Russia's response? That is a very big and meaningful question. How far will the US go to support Ukraine? That's a question about the US in the world. And then significantly, there are real people with real lives at stake on the ground in Ukraine. And I think the you know, uh, delivery of these tanks is significant in all of that. So for that reason, I think the delivery of the Leopard and uh, Abrams tanks leads the news. And that is the running order at the end of the news meeting. Leopard tanks, Dartmoor campers, and the future of the Belt and Road. Congratulations, Jess. I'm furious. Congratulations. <laughs> Well, that's it for this week's news meeting. Thank you to Jeevan, to Mark, and to Jess. Thank you all for bringing your stories. Thank you for listening. Um, We've got no idea, of course, what's going to come at us in the next week, but we do know that we'll be back here in a week's time, three more journalists, three more stories, trying to work out what leads the news, what follows, and most importantly, why. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll join us next time at the news meeting. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.